This is July 19th, 2020, some four months now into the plague. And uh, once again, I find myself having to comment on an aspect of the pandemic because it is, uh, well, uh, the most monumental event uh, we've had in a century. And in, in particular now, I'd like to begin by uh, noting the differences in the coronavirus, the number of coronavirus cases, differences between those in the United States and mostly other Western countries on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the Asian countries. Uh, this is something that many of us have <clears throat> noted for a long time. When you read the figures, I, I see these, uh, these statistics uh, quite, quite frequently. And um, you keep seeing, one keeps seeing uh, United States as the worst. We're number one. We're number one. And then uh, a slew of other Western countries in the Americas, Canada, um, <clears throat> Europe. And then China, uh, number 26, uh, as of last night, China was 20, number 26, Singapore 43, Japan 57, South Korea 68. Now, of course, these are just a listing of the cases, not per capita. And uh, I don't want to get bogged down in statistics because they're pretty unreliable. Uh, testing methods and even the uh, credibility of the um, the figures that different governments give have all been called into question. Um, so that's a that's a dangerous thing to try to get into the uh, the statistics that are provided. Um, but I do have the strong impression, and it's been months now, that the Asians are handling the uh, the pandemic better than, certainly better than the United States uh, and many other uh, Western countries. Um, Uh, most recently, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about Thailand and how very few cases they have per capita. And um, the article was posed as a question. What, how, how is it that they have such a low rate of cases and deaths, both? And they raised the different possibilities. Uh, social distancing is normal in Thailand. They don't hug. Um, they typically will greet one another with just a little uh, hands palm to palm. Um, the article asks, could it be how early they adopted uh, face masks? Could it be the outdoor lifestyle of many Thais? Uh, or even maybe their low rates of pre-existing conditions? Is there a genetic component that would explain the low rates in Thailand? Not only Thailand, but Vietnam 
and others in the uh, what they call the Mekong Delta grouping of countries, Southeast Asian countries, is that it's something genetic that causes a resistance to the coronavirus. 90% of uh, Southern Thais who tested positive were asymptomatic. And this East-West difference led me back to one of my all-time favorite books, uh, The Geography of Thought, uh, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why. This is by uh, uh, Richard Nisbet from the University of Michigan. He makes the case, uh, based on um, many, many studies and, uh, and research of other kinds, that uh, people actually think about and see the world differently because of differing ecologies, social structures, philosophies, and educational systems that date back to, uh, in the case of the, uh, the West, date back to ancient Greece, and in the case of uh, Asian countries, date back to China. Much of, uh, much of his references to Asian uh, worldviews and attitudes are, are, come from studying uh, Chinese uh, people, uh, but not only. Uh, I think, I think uh, East Asian countries generally uh, draw from the ancient Chinese tradition. Um, he, uh, to be clear, he's, this is not opinion. This is not a book of opinions. It's, it's heavily based on empirical research, well, social psychological research. Uh, he, uh, I read here from the book jacket, that uh, in, in 2002 he became the first social psychologist in a generation to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences. And so what he did was he began his research by uh, studies, uh, well, in, in, study, in, in comparing East and West. He began it with uh, studying students at his own University of Michigan, and then he extended that over the years to working with colleagues in uh, China, Japan, Korea, Beijing University, Kyoto University, Seoul National University, and the Chinese Institute of Psychology. So just to lay out the broad strokes of his, of his book, uh, the... Uh, there are these macro-cultural assumptions that are different between East and West. He uh, develops the point that uh, much of Western uh, attitudes and, and uh, cultural assumptions uh, derive from the Greeks, which uh, developed, really, for the first time, developed the whole the ideas of individualism, and independence. 
he, he acknowledges that there is some controversy over whether the concept of individualism arose more from from uh, Hebrew uh, tradition than from the Greek tradition, but then mostly talks about the Greek tradition. And the the sort of the core of the Greek and the the Western tradition is is uh, individual identity, identifying as an individual with a, a sense of personal agency. That is, I can make things happen. I can do. I'm the one. I'm the doer. Personal agency, personal freedom, personal liberty. Now, how might this lead up to differences in coronavirus cases. And then the Chinese, uh, it's, it's prim the, identi the identity is primarily a collective identity. It's based on memberships in, uh, in different kinds of collectives, in membership in family, the clan, the village, The, uh, the nation, strong, strong sense of national identity. Uh, he says somewhere that 95% uh, of the Chinese population is the Han, the dominant Han ethnic uh, group. 95%, in other words, homogeneity, not a lot of diversity. And we know in recent years what the government in China does with uh, those with minorities. Um, the uh, Uyghur Muslim minority in the northwest, in the west of China. We know what they did with uh, Tibet. I'll read here from uh, page six of the book. The chief moral system of China, Confucianism, was essentially an elaboration of the obligations that obtained between emperor and subject, parent and child, husband and wife, older brother and younger brother, and between friend and friend. Chinese society made the individual feel very much a part of a large complex and generally benign social organism where clear mutual obligations served as a guide to ethical conduct. Carrying out prescribed roles in an organized hierarchical system was the essence of Chinese daily life. There was no counterpart to the Greek sense of personal liberty. Uh, he says elsewhere, that in the Chinese language there is no word for individualism. Individual rights in China were one's share of the rights of the community as a whole, not a license to do as one pleased. Now look at this against the backdrop of the resistance. Uh, it's, it's starting to shrink, but the resistance to wearing masks in public 
that we see in this country, the cries of personal liberty, I can do what I want. Government has no, government has no right to tell me what to do. And then he talks about uh, the three sort of the two native creeds of China, that's Confucianism and Taoism, and, and then how they uh, kind of blended and folded uh, Buddhism into that. He says, Confucianism blended smoothly with Taoism, in particular the deep appreciation of the contradictions and changes in human life and need to see things whole that are integral to the notion of a yin-yang universe are also part of Confucian philosophy. Uh, he also says the holism, and he makes this point, we don't have time to go into all of his points, but he makes the point that that uh, the Chinese naturally, Chinese and uh, others in East Asia naturally see the world in a more holistic way. Um, the holism common to the three orientations suggested that every event is related to every other event. A key idea is the notion of resonance. If you pluck a string on an instrument, you produce a resonance in another string. Humans, heaven and earth create resonances in each other. If the emperor does something wrong, it throws the universe out of kilter. The emperor, well, that had, has nothing to do with us, does it? A few more extracts here. Chinese social life was interdependent and it was not liberty but harmony that was the watchword. The harmony of humans and nature for the Taoists and the harmony of humans with other humans for the Confucians. Similarly, the way and not the discovery of truth was the goal of philosophy. Thought that gave no guidance to action was fruitless. So this is the practicality of the Chinese and by extension of Zen. It's not principles that are foremost of importance. It's applying principles or just even without principles, um, managing one's life. Uh, to, in the case of Buddhism, uh, to minimize uh, harm to others, regardless of what, of doctrine or dogma. So, uh, again, um, this strong emphasis in the Western tradition on individualism and independence the strong centuries, centuries long emphasis in uh, East Asia on 
interdependence and harmony. I'll read the summary to uh, the first uh, two or three chapters. So there are very dramatic social-psychological differences between East Asians as a group and people of European culture as a group. East Asians live in an interdependent world in which the self is part of a larger whole. Westerners live in a world in which the self is a unitary free agent. Easterners value success and achievement in good part because they reflect well on the groups they belong to. Westerners value these things because they are badges of personal merit. Easterners value fitting in and engage in self-criticism to make sure that they do so. Westerners value individuality and strive to make themselves look good. Easterners are highly attuned to the feelings of others and strive for interpersonal harmony. Westerners are more concerned with knowing themselves and are prepared to sacrifice harmony for fairness. Easterners are accepting of hierarchy and group control. Westerners are more likely to prefer equality and scope for personal action. Asians avoid controversy and debate. Westerners have faith in the rhetoric of argumentation in arenas from the law to politics to science. Now, a couple of points here. Uh, uh, how accepting uh, Asians are of hierarchy and group control. We see how... Um, no small part of the success of uh, China in controlling the coronavirus came from the control, state control, of just laying out mandates uh, that were uh, non-negotiable and enforced uh, by law. Um, that's not our system. Um, it's never been our system to have this top-down uh, mandate uh, and yes we especially in the United States uh, favor um, egalitarianism or we just naturally live egalitarianism rather than hierarchy but it's hard to argue with the effectiveness just in terms of a particular project like controlling uh, the pandemic, the effectiveness of just laying down the law and enforcing it. The point of this Teisho is not to um, argue that we we need to be uh, become like Asians. That's ridiculous. We never will. We're not Asians. We have a completely different... Uh, background, upbringing, you know, but rather to consider how, in the case of a pandemic, an orientation more toward the collective, toward interdependence, 
would serve us better for a pandemic would serve us better than uh, individualism and insistence on uh, personal freedom. Always we've struggled in this country with a balance, finding a balance between uh, personal liberty on the one hand and responsibility to others on the other hand. And uh, it just drives me up the wall to hear these um, many tens of thousands of people who will scream from the rooftops uh, that how dare we uh, try to restrict their personal liberty to not wear masks. It's so blindingly obvious that they're not considering others at all. Whereas this would be just second nature. This would be reflexive in uh, East Asia and other Asian countries to first consider others' welfare. He uh, provides uh, quite a few uh, examples from his research uh, of uh, these this fundamental different or fundamentally different or orientation between individualism and the collective. He mentions that uh, American advertisements emphasize individual benefits and preferences. So he quotes a couple of uh, taglines from advertisements, American advertisements, make your way through the crowd, alive with pleasure. And he compares those to Korean advertisements that are more likely to emphasize collective values. And this is a couple uh, of uh, slogans for certain products in Korea. We have a way of bringing people closer together and wringing out the news of business friendships that really work. He also mentions the uh, difference in uh, children's primers, uh, at least at one time, uh, back uh, in the uh, 50s, 60s, maybe even earlier, there was this famous children's book, the very first book most of us read, called Dick and Jane. He says here, Dick and Jane and their dog, Spot, <clears throat> were quite the active individualists. Uh, the first page of an early edition from the, oh yeah, from the 1930s, depicts a little boy running across a lawn. The first sentences are, see Dick run, see Dick play. I remember this. See Dick run and play. This would seem the most natural sort of basic information to convey about kids to the Western mentality. But then he turns to the Chinese primer of the same era, what children would first read. It shows a little boy sitting on the shoulders of a bigger boy. And here's the slogan or the, the text. Big brother takes care of little brother. Big brother loves little brother. 
Little brother loves big brother. It's not an individual action, but relationships between people that seem important to convey in a child's first encounter with the printed word. Well, <coughs> I guess they don't have Dick and Jane anymore. Uh, but if anything, I, it seems to me from my impressions that, uh, uh, that without working with kindergartners, <laughs> my impressions that we've gone much, much further toward an emphasis on the self and on self-esteem. The author here says that in, in, in Japanese, there's no word for self-esteem. So just to drive this point home again, in Asia, the goal, I'm reading here, the goal for the self in relation to society is not so much to establish superiority or uniqueness, but to achieve harmony within a network of supportive social relationships and to play one's part in achieving collective ends. To, to play one's part in achieving collective ends. can see how this would bring Asians into a better position for handling a whole um, national pandemic or national if not global pandemic. Then uh, he takes up the very different uh, perspectives, east-west perspectives, on the matter of change and stability. And uh, what this brought up for me in particular with regard to the pandemic is uh, responses to the changing rates of pandemic cases or, or coronavirus cases. Uh, let me read more here. Uh, the Greek, he goes back again to Greece. The ancient Greek philosophers uh, were inclined to believe that things don't change much, or if they really are changing, future change will continue in the same direction and at the same rate as current change. And the same is true, he says, for ordinary modern Westerners. But like ancient Taoists and Confucian philosophers, ordinary modern Asians believe that things are constantly changing and that movement in a particular direction, for example, I'm inserting this, uh, a, a 
decline in coronavirus infections and movement in a particular direction far from indicating future changes in the same direction may be a sign that events are about to reverse direction. So there's, he uh, develops this point that uh, in, in Asian uh, attitudes, perspectives, uh, things are seen uh, much more as um, cyclical um, and not linear. Uh, Westerners, based again based on his research uh, with Westerners and with Asians, Koreans, Chinese, Japanese, and others, that uh, Asians are more likely to see uh, a changing direction as as reversing. Um, so there's the the famous story that uh, nine out of ten of you have heard me read is uh, The Lost Horse, um, where uh, the uh, goes, this is ancient Chinese folk story uh, about how uh, you can't know for sure uh, what anything is in its own. It all depends on the context and the larger picture where uh, the uh, father and son uh, living near the border in China I have this wonderful horse and one day the horse runs away across the border and everyone laments and sympathizes with them and then the wise old patriarch of the family uh, says, oh, but who's to say this isn't a blessing? And then it goes on from there. I won't repeat it because so many of you have heard it before. Um, but the point being, who knows what anything, any event in and of itself, we can't know what that will mean for the future. He, he mentions a case of where uh, the, um, the premier Chao Enlai, he was the, uh, uh, the China's premier in the communist era. Uh, he was asked once whether he thought the consequences of the French Revolution had been beneficial. And he said, it's too early to tell.
he, he says, in, in, uh, we, we've seen that modern Asians, like the ancient Chinese, view the world in holistic terms. They see a great deal of the field, especially background events. They are skilled in observing relationships between events. They regard the world as complex and highly changeable, and its components are inter as interrelated. And they see events as moving in cycles between extremes. And they feel that control over events requires coordination with others. Control over events requires coordination with others. And then he contrasts that with what he found in his research about Westerners, modern Westerners who see the world in analytic, atomistic terms. They see objects as discrete and separate from their environments. They see events as moving in linear fashion when they move at all. And they feel themselves to be personally in control of events even when they are not. He, he continues, the author, not only are worldviews different in a conceptual way, but also the world is literally viewed in different ways. Asians see the big picture and they see objects in relation to their environments. Uh, he, he, in one such experiment, uh, he showed that um, when, when, uh, when Westerners and Asians were both shown an image of a fish uh, in a tank uh, s surrounded by seaweed and other fish and all, that Westerners are much more likely to focus on the big fish, the one big, the biggest fish, whereas Asians just naturally were much more likely to see everything um, in, its, in its wholeness uh, and not singling out any one thing. In fact, he says, the author has, says here that, uh, that Asians see the big picture and they see objects in relation to their environments, so much so that it can be difficult for them to visually separate objects from their environments. And by the way, uh, he also says that he found that that um, those in Europe, Europeans, or those on the continent, um, that their perspectives uh, fell somewhere in between the American, or rather the Anglo-American extreme and the East Asian extreme. And you do see that... Uh, I think this is true f from what I remember from all of this dynamic, this changing statistics about the pandemic, that uh, European countries are do doing better than we are, maybe because of a more sense of a collective responsibility, but uh, not as well as uh, the Chinese and Koreans, Japanese, Singaporeans, Now, where does this all lead us? Um, 
again, there is no reason at all why why we should think that we can't appreciate in generally we can't appreciate differences uh, the ways that we are uh, authentically different than than Asians uh, but but let's consider that we're, we're all in Zen we are practicing an Asian tradition um, this is what I find so fascinating about these cultural cross-cultural studies is that what we're doing here is uh, attempting to understand uh, a teaching let's call it Zen a teaching that is not essentially Asian it's not there's no it has no Asian essence but it certainly has a tradition an Asian tradition and this is the work of of uh, teachers and sanghas is as Roshi Kapil used to say trying to determine uh, what is the essence uh, or even we know what the essence is the essence is nothing nothing no thing but rather uh, what is useful to adopt from the tradition the cultural forms and uh, what is not what would what would what would run against the grain of who we are as a people but who we are is not a static thing that's just what uh, the point that he made there that uh, that uh, certainly Buddhism knows as well as any Confucian or Taoist that everything is changing we're not a fixed culture and we're very much being influenced by Asian culture again it's it's in this particular situation a pandemic uh, we might have something to learn from these old civilizations compared to the China and Japan and Korea these Zen countries traditional Zen countries uh, the United States is is like a tween maybe not a child but the our our life experience as a, as a nation is so much less so much shorter than the Asian countries. Can we be secure enough in who we are that we can look to look east to see what we might be more open to as far as practical ways of dealing with a pandemic? You know, I. Uh, I've sometimes said in Taisho, this is based on my experience, that uh, through long Zen practice we find that we we find our way to uh, a greater personal balance, internal balance. And so, for example, people who are loud and extroverted uh, will 
find to some degree will find themselves settling down and becoming quieter, maybe and more introspective, more maybe even more contemplative. People who are the opposite, who are extremely shy, introverted, uh, may find over time uh, a greater ease with speaking up and expressing themselves. Um, and there are other axes where a long-time practitioner will find that things come more into balance. We're not uh, getting whipsawed between two extremes or mood or anything else. And uh, I would see this as, as a process that would happen, that is happening uh, on, a, on a global scale, uh, that is on a national scale, where um, through long Zen practice, we will find ourselves growing into more of a uh, appreciation for the interdependence of everything, growing into more of a sense of the importance of the collective, especially when our survival is threatened. So we really, as with so often as the case in Zen, we don't have to make a project out of this. I'm just tossing out research, results of research, evidence uh, of differences. And uh, there's nothing we need to do with that. I think uh, people who are practicing Zen are uh, more likely, let's hope, to uh, want to wear masks in public for the sake of others. Never mind yourself for the sake of others. He uh, wraps up his book with uh, a discussion of how East and West, he sees them converging. He says that there are certainly indications that the West finds attractions in the East. While the rest, while the rest of the world drinks Cokes and wears jeans, Westerners are rapidly fusing their cuisines with Eastern ones. Korea's populace is now one-third Christian, but the countless resorts in the Catskill Mountains, formerly catering to a middle-class Jewish clientele, are rapidly transforming themselves into centers for the study of Buddhism, which is gaining U.S. adherence at a much more rapid rate than mainline Protestantism. Many mainstream Western doctors accept some of the general notions of holistic medicine, even recommending ancient Asian treatments in lieu of modern Western ones for ailments ranging from headache to nausea. More importantly, the need to treat the whole person rather than attack the problem has gained wide currency. Millions of Americans, many of them not otherwise trendier than the soccer mom or insurance agent next door, now practice yoga and Tai Chi and, of course, meditation. This book was written before this huge growth of interest in meditation a few years ago. Many Americans who find the traditions of individualism to be alienating look to Eastern forms of community as possible cures for social enemy. 
Whole industries now practice Japanese pioneered forms of employer-employee relations. And so forth. He goes on with, with more. So it's not us learning so much. That's not the business of Zen. The real, the real business of Zen is unlearning. Um, and uh, I, would, I would hope that through daily Zen practice, uh, we can unlearn the at least those traits, the most extreme versions of those Western traits that put us at such a disadvantage in dealing with this global crisis. Well, the crisis is, is just happened, uh, but those qualities of collective action, cooperation with others, uh, Putting, putting others, if not before oneself, at least equal footing with oneself, considering others, the effects of our actions, that, that uh, daily Zen practice will, will uh, lead us into that kind of, of uh, those kinds of change of attitudes from the most extreme Western individualism and uh, personal freedom a personal freedom that ignores its effect on other people. All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <coughs> All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.